Well, good morning. This morning, we're actually kicking off our Easter series called Behold the Lamb, and I'm very excited about this series. This morning, we're going to talk specifically about what it means that Jesus is our Messiah. So we're going to get right into this this morning. I'm going to pray. I'm excited to be back in the pulpit after three weeks off, so we're going to get right into it and see what, this, what, what the Word of God has for us this morning. Let's pray together, and then we'll open Scripture. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Father, we are grateful for who you are and for all you do for us. Father, as we begin this series, preparing our hearts for Easter, Father, I ask that you would really just give us a greater insight into not just who you are, not just who Jesus is, but also just this plan you had from the very beginning of time to make a way for us to be back in relationship with you. Father, that even before we realized we had a need, you were already planning to meet that need for us in Jesus. And so this morning, Father, as we look at some of the broader strokes of Scripture and as we see some of the things that you have done over the course of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, Father, I ask that these things wouldn't just be theological ideas for us. We would understand truly that, Father, you have loved us individually. No matter where we are this morning, no matter what our story is, no matter what our history is, Father, you have loved us individually and you have revealed that love for us by sending Jesus to become the word of God become flesh, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who went to a cross and was, was crucified and was buried and rose again for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would see that this morning as we look at Jesus, our Messiah. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's really interesting to me that as you begin to un- unfold the broad strokes of, of Scripture, you begin to see that there is a plan that transcends time. And what I mean by that is God knew what he was going to do before he did anything. He knew what was going to happen. He had the knowledge of of what we were going to choose. He had the knowledge of what was going to happen. He had the knowledge of the fall of man. And he knew his plan to rescue us even before he said, let there be light. Before anything began, God had a plan. He knew we would turn away from him. He knew he would redeem us. And so we see this unveiled in Scripture. And this sometimes is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we live in time, right? We have, we have time going forward at one speed. And so for us to be outside of time doesn't really make sense to us. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But God's plan began before even time began. It is eternal. There is no beginning and no end to it. And I wonder what what the Apostle Paul says about this in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. He says this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul talks about this idea of this this mystery that's been hidden in God for all of time. And now God is making this plan known. This eternal plan is being made known in Christ, being fulfilled in Christ. We see that this plan is not new. God wasn't surprised. This is his plan from, from, from the beginning to reveal this through, the very, through Christ, his son. And so now, as we begin to walk through the narrative of Scripture, things begin to make more sense. Because the fall of man was not a surprise to God. As God creates all things, as he makes man and woman and they're there in the garden, God was not surprised at their rebellion. 
God was not surprised that they, they, they turned away from him and chose their own path. They chose independence from God instead of dependence upon him. And so we see, even in the, in the fall, as God begins to talk to Adam and Eve, and they begin to blame each other and blame the serpent, and God begins to talk through some of these things, we see that even in this first scene of Scripture, God's plan is beginning to be actually revealed to us. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God is talking to the serpent and cursing the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what we see here is the very first foreshadowing of God's plan to rescue, referencing Christ here, that Christ would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. We see that even in the garden, God is revealing his plan to us. And this is what we see throughout the context of the remainder of Scripture, is God revealing himself, his plan, and the one that is to come to rescue us. Now there is a word that we see in the Hebrew that is, is really capturing this whole idea of the one that God is choosing to be our rescuer. And that word is the word Messiah. Now, in the Hebrew, that's a very powerful word. It actually means the one who is anointed, the one who is chosen for a, for a very specific purpose. But we also see the same idea in Greek. Now, I don't know how many of you guys grew up in church, but there's this idea among some that almost like Jesus Christ, Christ is his last name, but that is not his last name. Christ is a title. Much like you, some people actually call me Pastor Davey, which I hate. I'm just Davey. But if you call me Pastor Davey, pastor is my title, not my name. Christ is not Jesus' name. It's his title. And the word Christ or Christos actually has the exact same meaning of the word in Hebrew, Mishiach, which is Messiah. So we see that Christ and Messiah are actually synonyms for each other, and they both mean the same thing. Christ and Messiah both mean the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that God has revealed to fulfill the purpose that he has. And so we see this idea that there is a Messiah, there is a Christ, and he is the one who is anointed. He is the one who has been chosen by God to fulfill a very specific purpose. Now, the anointing in the Old Testament was very interesting because this is, this is something that was um, very meaningful, and we're, we're going to talk in a few minutes about the different types of people that were actually, um, that actually went through that process. But in the anointing, in, in, in this idea of choosing Christ as, as the Messiah, we see a lot of prophecies about this or foreshadowing about this. So the Old Testament is talking about the one that God is choosing to come to fulfill this purpose. And we don't know what the purpose is yet, but there's one coming to rescue us is all we know. And we see in the Old Testament this foreshadowing is actually... Uh, shown, there's, there's so many prophecies about this, 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 this one that is to come. I want to give you a few of these this morning. The first one is that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and that's in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And I'm not going to read all these references. If you want to go back and jot these down and read them for yourselves, you're welcome to. But this is, this is a list of prophecies about this Messiah, this one that God has chosen to rescue us. The first one is that he would be born of a virgin. And the second one is that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, he can't choose who his mom is. He can't choose where he's born. But the plan of God is saying that this Messiah, the one that I've chosen, this is who he will be. He will be born of a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem. We also see he's a descendant of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. 
We also see that the Messiah in Isaiah 53 would be the one to take our sin and bear all of our punishment as our substitute. He's the one that takes the full wrath of God for all the things that we have done wrong. And so you begin to see this framework of who this Messiah is, who this one who was chosen by God is. We also see that he would be a willing sacrifice. You can see the idea or the picture of this when Abraham offers Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, that Isaac was willing to lay down and be the sacrifice. But God provided a a ram there for that sacrifice. And we see that as a picture of, of, of Christ as well. We also see the Messiah would be a picture of a Passover lamb. And and the deliverance from from, uh, slavery to Egypt, we see that God actually has, in the very last plague, he tells Israel to paint the door frames of their homes with the blood of the lamb. And that when they did that, that the angel would come and pass over them and death would not come to their household. And so we see Christ in Exodus chapter 12 as a picture of a Passover lamb for us. We also see in the book of Isaiah, both in chapter 9 and chapter 42, this Messiah would be our great light and our hope for peace. He's going to reveal what is true. He's going to restore peace between us and God. We also see the Messiah would be a healer in Isaiah chapter 35, that he is the one who's going to bring healing when he comes. We also see the Messiah would bring a new covenant between God and his people. And this is a big deal because the old covenant was based on performance and what they did. And now the Messiah, when he comes, this chosen one of God is going, to, is going to bring in a new covenant, a new relationship, a new agreement between us and God that we can have a new kind of, new kind of relationship with him. We also see in Psalm 16, the Messiah would die and rise again. Now, this doesn't happen every day, right? This is a big deal. For, it, for the psalmist to predict that the Messiah would be killed and would rise again is outside of, of anyone's control except for the one who is God himself. We also see that in all of these Old Testament prophecies, they're revealing who the Messiah is, what he will be like, and what he will do. And then in the New Testament, we see this chosen one show up. We see Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ show up. The word become flesh. God himself become, become man. And so now we have this idea of the Old Testament revealing that God has a plan, that God has a purpose, that he has anointed someone to come and to solve some problem, to rescue us from something. They don't have the full story, but they know what this Messiah is going to look like. They know where he's going to be born. They know where he's going to come from. They know how he's going to act, what he's going to do. They know some of these things. And this helps us have context then for what Christ is going to look like when he does show up. Now, there's a second aspect to this, this, this idea of being anointed that's very significant when it comes to the Old Testament. And that is, there was three different types of people that actually received the anointing. And the first one was kings. The kings of Israel were all, were all set aside for a purpose, and that purpose was to lead the people of God to God. That was the purpose of the king. And so you might recall that the, the prophet um, came to David, and he actually anointed David as king, even while Saul was still king, signifying that David would one day be king and lead the people back to God. And we know that when that anointing happened, the Spirit of God came upon David and stayed with David. And so we see that there is an anointing for the man who leads the people of God back to God. The kings received an, a special Spirit of God anointing to lead these people back. We also see that priests received the anointing, and they were the ones who were called to intercede to God on behalf of the people. And we see that Moses anointed Aaron, his brother, and his sons to have the special uh, 
capacity to intercede to God on behalf of the people. So they actually went to God for the people. So when the people angered God, they were the ones to go before God and deal with that. They were the ones to offer the sacrifices. And so we see kings, the ones who led people to God. We see the priests who intercede to God on behalf of the people. And the third type that was anointed were the the prophets. And the prophets were the ones who were anointed specially. They were chosen to speak to the people on behalf of God. And so now we have the kings who led people to God. We have the priests who interceded to God on behalf of the people. And now we also have the prophets who spoke to the people on behalf of God. And we see Elijah as one of the great prophets in the Old Testament anointing Elisha, his follower, with that double portion of the Spirit of God and signifying that he would be a prophet of the people. And so prophets, priests, and kings, in all of these these pictures, in every one of these times, there was oil that happened as part of this, this process of being anointed. And so they would actually put oil on them. And oil is a picture for us of the Holy Spirit of God. So the presence of God, the Spirit of God came upon these men as they were anointed to fulfill the purpose that they had been called to. And all these men are types for us. They're, they're, they're pictures of us of what God is doing as both prophets, priests, and kings. They're pictures of what God was going to do with the one who was chosen to be the Messiah. That Christ would be our ultimate King, the one who leads us back to God and shows us the, the, the truth of all that is. He is the ultimate priest for us, not just the one who intercedes, but the one who is also our sacrifice. And he is the ultimate prophet for us to speak the words of God, the words of truth to us, to reveal what is. And so we see Christ as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the one who is chosen by God to rescue his people, to lead his people, to intercede for the people, and to speak to the people on behalf of God. That is who Messiah is. And all of these examples that we see in the Old Testament are pictures, examples to us of what Christ was going to do when he came. And so now we have this expectation because for thousands of years, the Jewish people, they had this kind of uh, idea of what Messiah was going to be like. They knew what he, what he looked like as, as the chosen one. They had some, some, some framework of this, but they didn't understand the fullness of what it was going to be. As a matter of fact, the Jews had the expectation that when Messiah showed up, Israel was going to take over the entire world. They literally, they actually had this thought that Roman rule would be abolished, they would take over, and they would have this earthly kingdom where the Messiah would be the king, much like David, when, when, when he, he was king, he was dominating all those countries that, that were around them. They had this idea that when Christ came, the Messiah came, it was going to be an earthly kingdom. But the reality is that the kingdom that Christ had in mind, was, it, it transcended any earthly kingdom. It was far larger, far greater, and had much different purposes. It wasn't a physical kingdom at all. It was a spiritual kingdom. But the Jews didn't realize that. And so when Christ came, there was a lot of Jews that did not recognize him. And even now, many Jews do not recognize Christ as the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. They don't believe in him as that because he did not create an earthly kingdom. And so we see that all the Old Testament, the idea of Christ, what what, what he was going to be, this this Messiah was going to be, leads up to Jesus showing up. And because he did not meet the expectation of the Jews, they rejected him. Even though the kingdom that he's creating is far greater. Even though the truth that he brought and the healing he brought and the life he brought was far greater than anything they had ever experienced in all of their time with God. And now this new covenant that Christ has brought in They're rejecting that as well because they've rejected Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as the Christ. But the scripture is very clear about what God has done. And so how does the scripture actually describe the Messiah? We see in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 6 through 7. 
It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And what did Jesus call himself? The light of the world. It goes on and says, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We see Messiah is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. This is what he is coming to do and the titles he's going to have when he comes. We also see in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, The Apostle Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now that was a lot. Can we just talk through that for a second? Look at the last couple lines. It says this that he has made known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in the anointed one, in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, in heaven, things in heaven and things on earth. So the plan that God had from the beginning, the knowledge that God had from, from, from the very beginning of time, before time even began, God has now executed this plan. He has made this plan happen in the one he has chosen as the anointed one, as Christ, as the Messiah. So all that God had planned for us, all of his grace being poured out, all all the things that he did to restore us back to himself, all the things he did to reconcile us, to deal with our sin, to forgive our sin, all the plans that he had to pour his riches upon us, he has now executed, he has done through Jesus. He has given us all of these things, this, this inheritance, our, 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 our sonship, all the forgiveness of sins, the fact that we're saints now, not sinners, our justification. All of these things are given to us. They're, they're shown to us through Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the plan of God. So Christ as the anointed one, the chosen one, has now done what God planned to do. So God had a plan, and now Christ has accomplished the plan. The purpose has been fulfilled in Christ. And now in Christ, in the anointed one, in his chosen one, in our Messiah, we have all of these riches in him. And it's only found in him. We can have none of this outside of him. There is no way for us to achieve righteousness, rightness, innocence, goodness on our own. The way for us to receive the love of God, the grace of God is only found in Jesus, in the Christ, in the Messiah, in God's plan. There is no other plan. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the plan. This is the only rescue. This is the only way to deal with our sin and guilt and shame and death. This is the only hope we have. But it's a great hope, isn't it? He is our Messiah. 
He is the one that God has chosen to lead us back to God. He is the one that God has chosen to be the one to intercede for us and to be our sacrifice. And he's also the one that speaks to us the truth of who God is. That he is the perfect image of God to us. And he has shown us what God is like. And the fact that Christ fulfills this reveals the character of God to us. Reveals his love for us. I know not everyone feels love. I know some of you guys have have stories that are very rough. Some of us didn't have great loving homes that we actually grew up in. But the reality is, no matter what your story is or how difficult your walk has been, there is a God who is deeply in love with you, and he has proven his love for you in his son. He didn't leave you on your own. He didn't leave you to be... uh, to have to bear the weight of all of your sin on your, on your own, but he sent his son, his plan, before time began. He knew your need. He knew my need, and he sent his son to deal with our junk, to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from death. And so the whole Old Testament is saying, hey, God has a plan. There's someone coming. He has chosen to rescue you. And now in the New Testament, we see that Christ brings this in. Christ is the one completing this this whole plan, fulfilling this plan for us, revealing that God has done what he promised he would do. And now we have rescue and hope and peace and rest with God now and forever if we are in Christ. That he is our rescue. He is our savior. He is the one who is our chosen one, our Messiah, to bring us back to God. We see the same idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see what he's saying? That God in his foreknowledge didn't just know that we, that we would have a need, but God also knew that if he made a way, he knew the ones who would choose to accept that way. He knew the ones that, that would actually choose to accept Christ. And so he said, okay, if these people have a problem, I know what they're going to choose. Those are the ones that I'm going to choose to make like my son. Those are the ones that I will choose to make innocent. And those are the ones that I will glorify. These are the people that my son is coming to rescue. He knew this before time even began. And he didn't leave you on your own, but he made a way. He made a way through Jesus for us to experience life with God now and forever. So we see that God knew before all of this. God knew our need, God knew our choice, and God knew the outcome before any of this even happened. And that's kind of a big deal. You know, if your kids have needs and they never tell you what those needs are, I don't know if any of your kids ever have problems with their eyes, but one of our children, um, we found out several years into their schooling that they had some eyesight problems. And we never knew that they couldn't see the board. And we got this adjusted eventually, but we didn't know there was a need. And so if we don't know there's a need, we can't meet that need. But you know what? God knew your need before you even had a need. And this is big. Because the fact that you and me were dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible calls us powerless utterly helpless to rescue ourselves. And God knew that that was the place we were in. And this morning, if you haven't trusted Christ for yourself, here's the bad news. That's where you are. I don't say it to condemn you because we've all been there. The Bible says we are all sinners. We're all separated from God. And the result of our sin or not doing things God's way is separation from God now and forever. 
We've broken God's law, and there is a punishment for that law-breaking. We've rebelled against the creator of all things, and there is an outcome from that that we're separated from him forever. And God knew, listen to me, God knew that was going to be our need. God knew we couldn't rescue ourselves from that. He knew that no amount of good that we could do would ever overcome our guilt. It doesn't matter how many times I walk the old lady across the street. If I'm guilty of committing a crime, I'm still guilty of committing that crime. It doesn't matter how much money that I give to charity. If I'm guilty, I'm still guilty. And so our good works cannot cleanse our guilt. And God knew this. He knew our need. He knew what the punishment was. He knew we were destined to be separated from him forever. And so what did God do? He chose to set aside his son as the one who would be our rescue, as the one who would be our savior. And Christ came. The word become flesh. God become man. And he lived a perfect life. Never once broke the law of God. And he went to a cross, and they put nine-inch nails through his hands and feet and a crown of thorns upon his head, and they mocked him, and they beat him, and they crucified him, and they murdered him. And do you know why Christ bore all of that punishment? That was the wrath of God poured out for all of our wrongdoing. He became our substitute, as Isaiah prophesied. And the blood he shed was the blood that we should have shed. And the punishment he bore was our punishment. By his stripes, we are healed. And you see, what happens there is God, knowing our need, allowed Christ to be our substitute, to bear the full punishment of all of our sin upon himself, the wrath of God upon himself, so that we could be restored to relationship with God. Because Christ has dealt with our punishment, there's nothing left for us to be condemned for if we've chosen to accept what he did for us. Romans 8 says there is nothing left to condemn us for that we've been justified, declared innocent before God, that all of our guilt has been cleansed. And so God knew this need, and God made a way through his chosen one, his Messiah, his Christ, to meet our need. And God also knew our heart before we even would, would even make the choice that Christ is our rescuer. And do you know what Christ came to do? Do you know what Christ said he came to do? He says several things. Let me go through a few of these with you real quick. First, what he says is he came to serve and to be a ransom for us. In, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says this, Christ talking. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now think about this. God himself become flesh. Doesn't show up in a castle as a king, but he shows up in a manger. He doesn't ask people to serve him, but what does he do? He willingly gives his life, pours out his life for others. Not just on the cross, but his whole life was lived for others. And even one of his very last acts he committed on this earth was to wash the feet of the men who were following him. And he says, this is the example that I give to you. I, your master, am choosing to serve you. And so we see Christ came to serve us. We all see that Christ came, part of his mission, part of his anointing, part of his calling is to seek and to save the lost. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And the picture here is the idea of a sheep that has wandered and is in trouble and can't rescue itself, and it's caught up in a thicket, or it has some predators chasing it down. And the shepherd leaves the, leaves the flock to find the one sheep that is missing. He has come to, to seek us, to find us where we are, and to rescue us, to deliver us, and to bring us back into the fold, to bring us back to himself. So he came to serve and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
We also see in Hebrews 9 that Jesus came to do away with our sin. It says, now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, or he has come to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, that phrase, to put away sin, means to put an end to, to do away with once and for all. Christ came to do away with our sin. Scripture also teaches that God took the record of sins against us and nailed it to the cross of Christ to cancel it once and for all. So the moment that we choose to believe that Christ is the Messiah, Christ is, Christ is the one who God has chosen to, to rescue us from all of our guilt and shame, the moment that we place our faith in what he accomplished for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, what happens is this. All the charges against me are placed on his cross. And I am declared innocent of all sin now and forever. And I am no longer classified as a sinner you know what God calls me now? You know it. What is it? He calls us saints because of what Christ has done. We achieve his holiness, his righteousness, because he has done away with our sin once for all. In 1 John 3, 5, it also says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's why he came. We also see that Messiah came to destroy the work of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You know what Satan's purpose is? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Look at what John 10, 10 says. It says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life. Jesus came to serve us. He came to pursue us, to rescue us. He came to do away with our sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to give us life. So this, this chosen one of God, this anointed one of God, this Messiah, this Christ, he has come to serve us, to rescue us, to set us free, to do away with all of our guilt and shame and sin. The, the Messiah came to declare us innocent, to restore us, to reconcile us back to God, and to give us life. That is why Christ has come. That is why God, from before the foundation of the entire world, had a plan for Messiah to accomplish these purposes. This is what he offers us in his son. This is what he offers us in Jesus. The question I have for you this morning is this. Is he your Messiah? You see, because the theoretical knowledge of this is good to have. Please don't misunderstand me. It's good to understand this idea. It's good to know the Old Testament prophecies. It's good to know the life of Christ and what he's done for us. It's good to have the theology behind this, the history behind this. Those are good things. But if you haven't chosen Christ as your Messiah, then none of it matters. It doesn't matter. There is a personal aspect to this that changes everything. Doesn't matter if your parents are believers. Doesn't matter if you have siblings who are believers. Doesn't matter if you come to this church or go to a different church. Doesn't matter if you memorize the entire Bible. What matters is, has Jesus become your Messiah? Does he know who you are? Do you know him? Not about him. Many people know about Jesus who will not spend eternity with him. The question is, do you know him personally? You see, either Christ becomes your Messiah or you are trying to be your own Messiah. And there's no, there's no fence between those things. There's no, there's no fence to sit on. Either he is fully your Lord and Savior or you're trying to be your own Lord and Savior. Either he's calling the shots in your life or you're calling the shots in your life. 
And let me tell you this, if you're calling your own shots, I can tell you right now as a middle-aged man, that does not end well for any of us. It doesn't end well. And if you think I'm wrong, give it a shot for a while. And I'll pray that Christ doesn't come back until you realize it. But I'm telling you, it does not turn out the way you think it will. Because nothing in this world will satisfy us. Nothing in this world will cleanse our guilt or give us identity or meaning or purpose. God has placed eternity in our hearts for a reason. Our hearts are empty without him. We are created to know him and to live life with him and to be with him now and forever. And nothing else can satisfy that. And you can try all the things this world has to offer. You know what Solomon said? The wisest man who ever lived, who tried all of it, he said, everything is vanity. Everything is worthless. Everything is empty wind. He said, the conclusion of all of this, the only thing that matters, fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. And I'll tell you this. There's this incredible idea, and this is an idea that I need to do a whole message on. I'm going to give you a snippet this morning, okay? You know what it is to obey God? Moses actually told the people of Israel what it is to obey God. It's three steps. He says, if you want, he says, I want you to obey God, and you obey God by doing this, loving him, walking in his ways, and obeying him. That sounds kind of weird, right? You obey him by obeying him. But the process is this. He's giving you the process. You love first, then you walk with him, and the outcome is you obey him. What did Jesus say? If you love me, You'll keep my commands. He didn't say keep my commands to prove you love me. What he says is if you love me, that's the starting point. Love is the motive. And the outcome is we'll keep his commands. And so what I'm asking you this morning is until you see the love of God for you, until you respond, that you see that Christ came for me, Christ loves me in my brokenness, in my distress, in my, in my weakness, in my inability to, to actually save myself or bring myself to God, Christ loved me enough as the one chosen by God to come down, to lay down his life for me, to pursue me, to rescue me, to give me life. And all I have to do is believe this is God's plan and Christ has fulfilled it. And if I believe that, then what scripture says is I pass from death to life. I've been adopted by the creator of all things. I am forgiven of all of my sin, cleansed now and forever, and brought into relationship with God that will never end. And so when I ask you if he's your Messiah, that's what I'm talking about. It's not just the knowledge of this, but is it personal for you? Have you come to the end of yourself where you say, you know what, I can't do this on my own? Religion is empty. Religion is our effort to get to God, and we can't get there. Our arms are too short. But God has reached down to us through Christ and wants a relationship with us. And he's offering us this through what Christ has done, the Messiah, the anointed one. He has done this, fulfilled the purpose of God. He has accomplished it for us. And the question is, are you willing to believe that today? Is he your Messiah? Jesus is the promised priest, king, and prophet. He's the one who was anointed by God to bring about our redemption, to bring us back to God, bring us close to him again. He is Jesus who has been set aside by God, anointed by God, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate one who has chosen to be our rescuer. I want you to see what John says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now look at what he says right here. But these, all these things that John had written, are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, 
the fulfillment of God's promises, the one chosen by God. All these things have been written so you would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, at one point, Jesus turned to his disciples in his ministry and says, who do people say that I am? And there was this whole list of things that came out. They say, you're a prophet, or you're Elijah reborn, or you're this, or you're that. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And you know what Peter said to him? You are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. You are the one that is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. And you know what Jesus said? He said, you didn't figure this out on your own, Peter, but the Spirit of God has revealed this to you. And my hope is not that my words compel you or that my argument has been good enough to convince you of this, but my hope this morning is that the Spirit of God is revealing to you that Jesus is your Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. And even if you came this morning and didn't even realize you had a need, I hope the Spirit has revealed not only your need, but how God has met that need through Jesus. He is your Messiah. So this morning, may you either choose to accept Jesus as your Messiah for the first time, or if he is your Messiah, may you truly understand the fullness of what God has done for you, and may you believe that he has accomplished all of this for you through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning. Father, we thank you that even before we knew we had an issue, even before we knew we had a need, you had a plan in place to meet that need in a way that we could have never come up with on our own. Father, a plan that is so much more complete and so much more full and so much more beautiful than anything we could have imagined. And we're thankful, Father, for the Messiah the one you have chosen as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, as our redeemer, the one you have chosen to rescue us when we were powerless, and how that reveals your love and your grace to us in a way that nothing else ever could have. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here hearing this message that has not trusted Christ for themselves, I pray this morning they would see their need, and they would say what Peter said, that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one. You are the one that God has given to rescue me. You are the fulfillment of all things promised. And Father, I do also ask that if there's those here that have trusted Christ previously, Father, that we would see you in a greater way. We would see you lifted up in a way that we've never seen before, that we would believe these things more and more and rest in all that you have done. Father, help us to stop with all of our effort and toiling and struggling and help us just to rest in what you've accomplished for us in Jesus. Father, may we be a people, a church that reflects you in our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, in everything we do, we ask we would make you known, and we'll give you all the credit for what you do. We pray in Jesus' name.